0: Patrick. My name is Maria. I'm a listener here from Southern Arizona and uh, just calling to leave a comment um, just that I really enjoy your work. I really appreciate what you're doing. Um, I'm listening to your latest episode and um, I really like that you uh, put on the uh, messages from the prior two listeners commenting on the Blue Wall of Silence episode um and their uh, criticisms of it i think that you show a lot of integrity for uh you know looking at what you could have done better and you know putting it out there and committing to doing that so uh, i really appreciate that as a listener because um you know that's that's not something that you see all the time and my other comment is on the idea of giving a platform to someone with these views that um, just, you know, honestly aren't that great, Um, I I think there is something to be said about that. But I think the main thing here is that you, of course, you don't want to enter an echo chamber and you've had guests that you've disagreed with before and you do a great job interviewing them and having a conversation with them. But um, I definitely think that, you know, being able to confront, when there there is um, a philosophy or an idea that's being put across that just isn't okay. Um, and that can be really hard. You know, I have a really hard time with confrontation, and that's something that I'm trying to learn when someone's, you know, getting in my face and, you know, saying things that I know aren't okay. Just how to handle it, especially if they're a friend or if they're someone that I'm having a pleasant conversation with. How do you even approach that? Um, so I think that you learning to do that and that journey um, is, you know inspirational to me and maybe even practicing uh, how to confront someone with that because I know that's something that I need a lot of work on but um yeah just uh leaving that leaving you a message to let you know how I feel about all that and that you're doing a great job and um, keep up the good work uh, I really appreciate it I know that your listeners appreciate it so you're awesome all right bye
1: Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. Maria, thank you for that message, that very kind message. I'll respond to it in just a moment. I'll just do some really quick business here. If you want to learn anything about this project, go to the website lastborninthewilderness.com. A link to this website and everything that I'm going to mention is going to be in the description of this episode. Uh, so go to the website. Uh, every episode, every segment's on there. All of the extras. Everything that this project is will be found there. So check it out. Um, and if you want to support this project, if you like what I'm doing with this, obviously you can share this work, you, su- you can subscribe to it on any of the respective platforms that this podcast is streaming from. Uh, but if you really want to support this work monetarily, there's two ways to do that. You can do so through the one-time donation link, which is through the PayPal link. You'll find it down in the description and on the website, but it's paypal.me lastbornpodcast You can make a one-time donation through that link. Very simple. And if you want to support this work more regularly, or really want to sustain this work, you can do so through the Patreon page. You go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. And by going to that page, you can make monthly contributions to the production of this project. You can do as little as a dollar a month. And by doing that, you'll gain early access to these interviews, these conversations before the official public release. You know, everything I do for this project essentially Uh, Especially these interviews are going to be publicly available, but for patrons, just to thank them for supporting me, I give them a little early access to that content. And I also throw some other extras on that Patreon page as well. So please consider going to that page and supporting this work. For those patrons that have been supporting this work for as long as they respectively each have, I thank you so very much to each of you for supporting this work. It means the world to me that people are willing to do that. Uh, This just takes a lot of time and energy to produce, so it just means everything to me that people are willing to do that, Um, so thank you so much. So, Maria, in response to your call, first of all, Maria called the uh, Drop Me a Line uh, phone number. Uh, This phone number, you call it, it'll take you straight to a voicemail, you can leave a message. You can leave anywhere from, say, 30 seconds to about three minutes, and I will include that message at the beginning of these podcasts and I'll respond to them. Um, you can during that message state whether you want it to be included or not in the podcast. That would really help me out in knowing what your intentions are with the message. But if you want to call that phone number, you can do so through uh, the number 208-918-2837. That is 208-918-2837. And so uh, yeah, Maria, uh Thank you for those kind words. I've received. I think you're like the fourth call that I've gotten specifically about that episode I did with him, and uh, that also that that kind of bullshit debate thing that I did a few weeks back that I released uh, with him as well. And I really appreciate the kind words because after the releasing that initial episode with him, um, I've received a couple again a couple calls about it, kind of. Critiquing or or they were concerned a bit with some of the ways that he described certain sub or talked about certain subjects, the the, the kind of use of certain words and uh, and the uh, the kind of ideas he had surrounding race. And you're right, you know, I don't want this podcast to just be an echo chamber. I don't want it to be filled with people that I just generally completely agree with on almost everything. I want people who have differing ideas and opinions on here as well. And I try to do that. Um, I don't necessarily always do a great job because obviously my passion leads me in certain directions and that's going to lead me towards certain guests that I want to illuminate, you know, me and and other people on certain subjects, right? So obviously it's going to be about what I'm interested in, but I am willing and of course totally capable of having people on that I don't fully agree with. But it does become about protecting this space, you know, making sure that, the people that I choose to invite onto this thing are not espousing harmful ideas, at least in my opinion, and I think in the opinions of several people who have called in as well. I think they're right, and, and I think that this, this project is a learning experience for me. You know, learning to push back against people I don't agree with, uh, learning to sort of stand your ground on your, your principles and your ideas, um, but also being flexible enough to listen to other people. There's a balance there, and it's really difficult to find that balance in your own life, let alone uh, doing it through a podcast. So Maria, your insights, you know, thank you for sharing your own personal uh, insights into that, because again, it is something that we're all growing up into, I hope, which is to be stronger, to be able to bear the weight of certain kinds of responsibilities in our life, which can mean standing up to people who are willing to take advantage of others. Uh, So thank you. I really appreciate that message. It was very kind. Again, if you want to do what Maria did, please call that number. I would really, really appreciate any feedback that anybody has regarding this work. And like I said, as also regarding that number, if you just want to call it and say whatever the hell you want, you can do that as well. Just let me know what you intend with those messages. Thank you so much for listening. Here's the episode. Um, um. This episode I speak with Gord Hill. He also goes under the name Zigzag and he is an indigenous artist, anarchist, and author. He's a member of the Wakawak Nation. He's the author of numerous books and graphic novels. Uh, he is the author of 500 Years of Indigenous Resistance and that was eventually made into a graphic novel uh, titled the 500 Years of Resistance comic book. He's also the illustrator and author of the Anti-Capitalist Resistance comic book and the Antifa comic book. So in this discussion with Gord, um, I ask him to go over some of the major examples, at least at the very beginning, some of the major examples of indigenous resistance here in the so-called Americas. You know, how did indigenous people resist colonial expansion? And there's a plenty of examples that we can look to. Gord provides a few highlights of that, and of course he explores that in great depth in his book, 500 Years of Indigenous Resistance. Uh, But then we move on to his work as an anarchist, as a person who is a part of the anti-fascist, anti-capitalist kind of movements, um, and how indigenous resistance fits within that, or how I should maybe say how it stands parallel to what that is. Often we tend to think that these are two different struggles, but often they they come together, and more often than not, especially in more recent times, we're seeing the anti-colonial Uh, Indigenous resistance movements are working and learning from, and the same going the other way, vice versa, uh, from anti-capitalist and anti-fascist movements as well. Uh, There seems to be a lot of agreement on on who the enemy is, so to speak, or what needs to be addressed and what needs to be attacked and defended against. And particularly indigenous people that have been living on this land for for time immemorial, that have had to resist colonial expansion for hundreds and hundreds of years, they understand. More than anything, the exploitive quality of the civilization, of the set of living arrangements, particularly within settler culture. And anarchists and anti-capitalists and anti-fascists can learn a lot from indigenous resistance movements, and I think Gord provides something like a bridge between those things. Uh, learning about diversity of tactics. Of course, we get into this a little later in the episode. Um, I referenced my interview I had several weeks back with Peter Gelderloos, who's the author of How Nonviolence Protects the State, among other books as well, Um, kind of addressing some of the the ideology of nonviolence and pacifism. And so we get into the diversity of tactics, and, and particularly when we talk about indigenous resistance movements, you know, what works, you know, what works in engaging with people that are trying to colonize you, that are trying to eradicate your population, your culture, your language, your whole way of life, and your whole being? How do how did indigenous peoples uh, grapple with that? You know, and it's not as simple, well, they, you know, fought nonviolently in the face of, of overwhelming violence and oppression. That's absolutely not the case. Although, within the diversity of tactics, what we would maybe define as nonviolence definitely fits within that spectrum. So we need to understand this, and we need to have respect and and um, curiosity and, and humility in the face of what Indigenous people have been uh, fighting against and have successfully, in many cases, fought against um, up to the present day. There's a lot to learn from both sides, and I think Gord provides an excellent An excellent example of somebody who has a foot in both worlds. He understands both of these subjects very, very well and sees the the similarities in them and how they cross over all the time. Uh, This is just a really good conversation uh, with Gord. I really enjoyed it. Um, I think we kind of covered a lot of ground, so it was really just a fantastic uh, experience to get to know him a little bit. Uh, He is, like I mentioned, a graphic novelist, so his art is really worth looking at. I mean, you should definitely go pick up his graphic novels. They're educational, right? But they're just beautiful to look at and to engage with. So please check out his graphic novels. I'll provide links to all the books I mentioned at the beginning uh, here in the description of this episode. And also, if you want to keep updated with Indigenous resistance movements um, and also the work that Gord is doing, you can do so at Warrior Publications wordpress.com. I'll provide a link to that down in the description of this episode. And that's, again, where you can find pretty much all the information that you can get about Gord's work uh, through that website. Please enjoy this conversation with Gord Hill. All right, Gord. Well, thank you for doing this, man. Uh, I've been going over your work lately, and I, I've been really enjoying it. Uh, your book that you wrote, 500 Years of Indigenous Resistance, it's a classic. You you also turned that into a comic book, from what I understand. I haven't had a chance to go over that, but I've been looking at some of your your work uh, in, in making graphic novels, uh, and, and it's really excellent work. Uh, I, I'm going to definitely go and probably buy a couple of those uh, when we're done with this interview. But, um, uh, you know, something that I've been trying to focus and I, me- I mentioned this before we started recording, but something I've been trying to to do more of is is to detail and discuss in more depth, uh, indigenous resistance. Um, I am, I'm not an indigenous person. Um, and I, have been really trying to, uh, I don't know, there's, there's so much history, there's so much context that needs to be explored. Um, and, and I, and I just feel like there's so many people that need to understand this information, including myself. Um and going through your book, Five Hundred Years of Indigenous Resistance, in particular, uh, you know, you just realize that there's so much of this history, uh, and and there's so many cultures and different societies that have existed on this continent that we live on right now, that have resisted colonialism and they've been doing this for hundreds of years up to the present moment. Uh, and when particularly when we get into anarchism or anti-fascism, anti-capitalist. Uh, movements and resistance. Uh, again, as I mentioned before we recorded, there's a lot of lip service paid to indigenous resistance, and obviously there is a great deal of support for it. But to understand what works in resisting colonialism and resisting capitalism and resisting, you know, the, the advancement of right-wing ideologies, uh, we need to really look at everything that's available to us. And so... I really wanted to talk to you, you know, in particular, I guess my first question would be to ask, uh, what are some major examples in the work that you have done, uh, that you can point to regarding indigenous resistance? And I know that there's 500 years of that, but if there's some major examples that you would love to point to, I would, I would ask that you please could go over that with us. That'd be great.
2: Sure. I think, uh, maybe one of the First ones that comes to mind is the Mapuche in uh, present day Chile and extending into Argentina because they were, uh, you know, they were very, uh, Autonomous, uh, decentralized type of indigenous society, and they had a lot of uh, success resisting the Spanish colonialism for a couple hundred years, and they were actually never conquered by the Spanish, and they continued their resistance through the establishment of the state of Chile, and they're still a very strong militant movement to this day, and they're out, you know, defending their territory, you know, mostly against logging, and they're experiencing a lot of repression from the military police and whatnot, but I think that's a very good example of Indigenous resistance that's survived and continued for hundreds of years up to the present day. Um, And I think on the Great Plains, you know, you had the Lakota and uh, uh, the Dakota-Nakota and the uh, Arapaho and the Cheyenne, and and they fought for, uh, you know, several decades, uh, decades. uh, carried out some significant military defeats against the U.S. Cavalry. Um, and, again, they were an autonomous, uh, mostly decentralized type of uh, social organization. But they were,
0: uh, you know, they were able
2: to fight for several decades. And the legacy of resistance that they were able to uh, build, uh, you know, ex- you know, continues to this day, and so you see in South Dakota, you know, you had a very strong Indigenous resistance movement emerge in the 1960s and 1970s, um, and, you know, they were really, they really, uh, they looked to the the history and their ancestors who had carried out this type of resistance against the U.S. cavalry. So, th- I mean, those are c- a couple of examples that come to mind. Um, here on the northwest coast, you know, we had a m- much more recent contact, like, Beginning in the late 1700s, there was European traders that started coming into the region. And the region here wasn't really colonized until, you know, maybe the mid-1800s. We had the Royal Navy gunboats come in, establish a colonial uh, law and order, and impose colonial authority in the region here. But today you still have fairly resilient Indigenous communities that are continuing to try to protect their land and the resources here. You know, like a big issue here right now is the fish farms. So a, a lot of bands, uh, tribal groups, villages have been trying to remove fish farms. And then up north, you have the Wet'suwet'en trying to stop the uh, the natural gas pipeline. And there was a major mobilization a few years ago against other proposed pipelines. So, I mean, so today you still have, like, a fairly healthy, vibrant uh, Indigenous resistance movement across the country. Um, and, I, you know, and a lot of that goes back to the history of colonialism and the history of indigenous resistance that informs the struggles of today. So those are some examples that come to my mind.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I mean, there's, uh, you know, I'm sure there's, like, hundreds of examples of that. Um, but, you know, I, 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 when I was reading your book, you know, I, I think a lot of people now are becoming, I would say, savvy, I guess, uh, regarding, say, like, like, for instance, I mean, here's, it, it, it's kind of, it's it's symbolic, of course, but like, say, Columbus Day, right? People are like, "I oh, we're fed up with this whole Columbus Day thing. Uh, we're going to now call it Indigenous People's Day. Uh, we're not going to celebrate it anymore, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I still think that there is a great deal of, um, there's like a mythology that still, you know, many people uh, have, or I should say, you know, people that are, are descendants or are settlers uh, in this land. Uh if If there were some examples that you could give of some of these really big misconceptions or myths that people have about what what indigenous peoples on this land, what their lives were like, you know, before Columbus, before the colonization project began. Um, I know that there's a great deal of diversity. We can't be this like we it's it's totally a problem when people say like like I just did indigenous people that that definitely just sort of creates a broad, like, word to describe. Yeah, no, but there
2: there are some, there are things we identify as being an indigenous culture kind of thing. You know, that's one would be, you know, uh, a relationship to the natural world. So that's like part of an indigenous uh, worldview, indigenous philosophy, indigenous culture is really tied to the land. So, I mean, there are generalizations that can be made, but in in regards to indigenous people's day, I mean, that was... um, I mean, a lot of that was organized by Indigenous peoples as part of the decolonization to overturn this colonial narrative that, you know, we've grown up with, we were taught in schools, celebrate Columbus Day and all this stuff. So I think it's an important step for Indigenous people. And those movements were, I think, you know, primarily led by Indigenous people to overturn Columbus Day, as they have in a number of uh, cities and whatnot. Um, but in terms of, like, some of the myths about Indigenous people, I think one of the main ones would be that, in an indigenous society, like in the village uh, you know you're a totally free individual, and the land belonged to nobody, and you could just go out and do whatever you want and there's total freedom and autonomy but that's not that's not the reality because like here on the northwest coast, like our territories are very very uh, defined, and you could not just come in you know if you were from even from another village or a family group, you can 't just go into some other family group uh, their territory, and start using resources. Um, And there's a lot of uh, things about an Indigenous society, like how people live together, how they self-organize themselves and whatnot. And so there was a lot of responsibility on individuals to the, the communal lifestyle, like, you know, people to contribute and to maintain the traditions and whatnot. And I think that's kind of part of a myth that probably really arose maybe with the hippie movement in the, in the 60s and that was like that native tribes were just completely, you know, it's completely individual freedom and you can do whatever you want. And that's not the reality. Uh, in an indigenous community, you're living with other people. You have a lot of rights and responsibilities that you have to, uh, you know, maintain if the, if the society and the culture itself is to, is to, uh, you know, survive and maintain the people and all that. Um, now, there's some other things, like, you also get this kind of a weird paths of this new age, uh, ideas that come in that oh, indigenous people were all peace-loving and, um, you know, every, everybody got along type of thing, which, which isn't true. Like, most, like, uh, there was a lot of, uh, intertribal warfare, uh, competition for resources and this type of stuff. So, uh, that's another thing I think, like, this glamorization, romanticization of indigenous peoples, um, when in reality, you know there were military conflicts there were military uh, uh, forces that were maintained, the warrior societies that were maintained to defend uh, the territory, but they also carried out you know offensive actions against other 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 nations that they were uh, warring with at the time so anyway like you like you said i mean it 's a very complex uh each indi- indigenous uh, nation has its uh, unique uh, cultural ideas and beliefs and practices, and they're all different because of the land and resources that they're living on. So here in the Northwest Coast, you know, people are really uh, influenced by the ocean and the mountains and the forests. And then if you go into other regions, such as the plains, you know, they're going to have a different type of culture, a uh, different type of social organization even. So... That the other that's the other thing I guess is like that there's this idea Indigenous people are all like the same but that's not true and then and today you know and big myth is that we're all treaty people which was coming out with the Idle No More movement and that which is trying to promote this treaty rights but then here in British Columbia you know the vast majority of Indigenous nations don't have treaties so that, that, that's another thing that's more of a modern context of uh you know. Uh, a myth or uh misinformation about indigenous peoples. I mean here in Canada there's like there's like over six hundred individual bands and these bands all have their own autonomy and they're they're doing their own thing pretty much. And then you have tribal groupings and that. So it's a very diverse uh uh, people, population, it's spread out all across, here in Canada, it's spread out all across the country, um, so there's a lot of different factors, and yeah, there's a lot of differences, but there are, you know, there are some generalities that, you know, we can say that's indigenous culture, but yeah.
0: Right. Yeah,
1: I, I've been uh, covering the, uh, the, the situation at the Unistotin camp, uh, part of the the Wet'suwet'en territory, uh, and in the RCM, uh, RMCP. Am I saying that correctly? RCMP. I RCMP. Was getting, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're
2: all Canadian Mounted Police. Yeah, yeah. It's our federal police force. It's similar to the FBI, except they're a, like a paramilitary, uniformed force.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, I've been I've been trying to cover that. I I, I spoke with um, actually yesterday. I spoke with Dr. Carla Tate who. Uh, she's a member of the uh, Unistoten uh, Homestead, I guess, uh, house group, and and I and I yeah. and I try to like, you know, I I want to to try to figure out and understand more of like the way that governance is, you know, how, how for instance, the uh, West wetson people, like how they have managed their territory, their relationship with the Canadian government, um, and that yeah, like you said, there there's this myth of there being treaties, and and from what uh, legally has been proven in Canadian law, Canadian court, uh, that there's many, many of this, much of this land was not ceded. It it was, there was no treaties made. Um, and, and under, I guess now it's, in di- uh, under international law under the UN, uh, you know, the, these rights have to be, uh, respected under law, of course, that doesn't mean it's necessarily respected as we've seen very recently. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and over yeah. and over again through over probably hundreds of years right um but yeah it, it, there there's these like very old i would say very ancient forms of governance that is, that have existed with a lot of these indigenous peoples uh nations um and and it, it it's it's really fascinating to me and beautiful and good to to recognize this is that within these social structures there is this Responsibility, as you said, there it, there's this like idea that they're just this this open untamed land, and people were just roaming around doing whatever they wanted, which is totally untrue. Um, there was this yeah. responsibility to the land and to take care of it. And obviously, while it's complica- complicated, as you said, there was conflicts between these different groups of people. Um, in general, there was this uh, social responsibility that was in- ingrained into the uh, the functions of these societies, um, and that to me is, is I think really one of the major lessons that we can learn as people that are not indigenous to this land is that we don't know how to fucking live here. (laughs) You know, we don't actually know how to, how to be with this place. And, and uh, you know, one of the long-term trends of colonialism on, on the North American continent uh, and probably the South American continent as well is, is the fact that the people that came here just have very little knowledge and they had very little interest in learning much of that from the indigenous peoples here. Um
2: well, I think on the one hand, uh, there was a lot of ignorance about the land and the resources here, and but actually, I, I think uh, you know, most settlers who were able to survive and get going actually learned a lot from uh, the indigenous peoples, like how, how to get food, how to grow food, and all that type of stuff. But I think if you can go, you know, you can go further back, though, into history, and like, because the European peoples were, of course, at one time a tribal people as well, but they were colonized by the Romans, and so the Roman Empire extended all across Western Europe, and that's where you know, the European European tribal peoples that 's where they were colonized and they became assimilated into the Roman imperial system and they lost a lot of their culture and then that continued on through hundreds of years of feudalism and that and then you know when the, what the witches the uh, the uh, the massacre the execution of witches that occurred uh, with the uh, the Holy Inquisition and that I mean that was kind of like the last remnants of that indigenous cultural knowledge that was then destroyed at that time because the witches were, you know, they were the ones, they had a connection to the land, their you know, her herbal medicines and all this type of knowledge that they had. So that was eradicated by the church at that time. So when the European colonizers came to the Americas, They've been they've been colonized by the Romans. They've been Christianized by the, the the Church, and so they're totally disconnected from the natural world and the idea that you live with the natural world. And to them, of course, nature was something to be conquered, and they extended that to the indigenous inhabitants, the populations of these regions that they invaded and colonized. Now, there's something just they're an obstacle to be conquered just like nature is. And I think that's the, and then of course that gives rise to capitalism. I mean, as an economic system from the, from the gathering of all the the resources like gold and silver and the forestry and the animals and all this type of stuff. And, that, so that created the, the economic system of capitalism. But all of that, that history, that's what informs the ideology of capitalism, the belief that, you know, the economic or uh, financial accumulation and all that is the way to live. And you're totally disconnected from the natural world. You don't even care what happens to the natural world because you're just worried about accumulating more and more uh, profit. So I think if you go back in the history, you know, you can see that that process began actually in Europe. And that's yeah. what kind of...
1: Yeah, 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 that well that that uh everything you're saying. I'm glad you said that because I I interviewed uh it was last year I interviewed Sylvia Federici. She's the author of um Caliban and the Witch and of course she's written other things about this, but there, everything you said is what she discusses and wrote about in that book is that uh our transition from feudalism to capitalism in Europe was a, a major event that is often overlooked by Theorists by people who are looking at the history, they they often gloss over the witch hunts. They see it as this like really weird thing mm-hmm. that happened, but like maybe they don't know hundred percent with certainty. But there was like at least probably over the course of a hundred, few hundred years, over a hundred thousand women were were publicly executed and forced to confess that they were witches, and this horribly humiliating, horrific event that happened you know, uh, over, again, over, over decades, over hundreds of years, which, like you said, you know, there was this indigenous wisdom, this indigenous knowledge that was lost by doing that. That's essentially what that project was. And, and that, that call that the European peoples had to be colonized first before that colonization spread to what we now call the Americas. And like, yeah, that's, yeah, that is, and it's such a, I, I guess, a trip. It's a little bit trippy when you kind of look at it in that way and you realize that, that in order for them to become colonizers, they themselves had to become colonized, and
2: yeah. yeah, I think that's something that's lacking in a in a sense from a lot of the uh, 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 the settler politics. Is this the knowledge or the uh, acknowledgement that they that, that that you know European peoples were one time uh, indigenous tribal peoples, and the process by which they lost that is you know, that's the history of colonialism. It doesn't just begin with the Americas or something, it actually goes much further back. And of course, you can go back to the establishment of civilizations. Um, I think, you know, might be another topic, but the civilization, the urbanization, concentration of power and authority into, uh, you know, a single unit, uh, build the establishment of hierarchy and all that with the civilization. I mean, I think that that's something that, You know, Western civilization rose and expanded across the world through colonialism and imperialism, and that's why we live under the system that we live under today. And that's why I think history is so important, because it can tell you how you came to be where you are today, just like your own personal life history. If you could look back and reflect on it and study it, you'd understand more about yourself. You know what, why you are the way you are, and it's the same applied to a society. You know the way the way our society is organized and the way we do things today. It's all tied into this history that goes back, you know, thousands of years now. But yeah, yeah, it's definitely um, interesting. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, there's there's a lot to explore in that that subject alone. But um, you know, I, I I'm kind of I'm probably going to jump around a little bit here, but I I think that what's v- extremely valuable in in seeing in seeing that perspective and having this long view of history is realizing that, you know, this, this project has been going on for a very long time. Um, and, and there has been, again, resistance. And as you mentioned at the very beginning, there are still very contemporary examples of indigenous resistance to colonialism, to the state. And, you know, you are, of, of course, you know, having written about this, but you also have written about anti-fascism, um, anti-capitalism. You've been involved in these uh, this these movements, if I could say it that way, uh, to to whatever degree for however many years at this point. Um and, and, and before, I think it's before we started recording, but I was sort of discussing the, there's sort of a Eurocentric uh, or, or Western-centric, I may mean, not say that correctly, uh, view of, of anarchism. So when we talk about anti-fascism or anarchism, it's often through a Western uh, theory or Western lens Um but I, I think that there's so much that can be learned from indigenous struggles, indigenous forms of organization um, in fighting oppressive power structures. Um, and like you had mentioned, yeah. yeah, yeah. And and I think you've done a great job in trying to blend and meld those together, understanding that there are contradictions between both of them, but we can probably find common ground in understanding that. Um, in your work, I mean, what have you, uh, what kind of themes and what, what ways have you tried to address maybe that western uh, bias in anarchism and trying to meld that with maybe more indigenous perspectives uh, if, if you had any ideas or thoughts on that that would be great
2: well I think anarchism I mean, anarchism is a European uh, ideology it, it arose in Europe and it arose in response to the rise of capitalism and it was part of the uh, the kind of socialist uh, revolutionary left movement that arose you know, by the 1800s and into the early 1900s, and it makes sense to me because this is a movement. It's being organized by the working class primarily, and they're trying to deal with this capital, a new form of economic uh, power, capitalism. So that's to me, that's where I mean, that's to me where the anarchist movement really has its birth. It's in, it's in the proletariat fighting against the rise of the capitalist state, the same as the communist movement and the socialist movement, and. I think that to to be like, oh, uh, well, anarchism should also be like indigenous kind of thing. I don't think that's really necessary. I be, But I do believe that indigenous peoples, because now we're living under the state, because we're colonized, uh, we're living under the state. So anarchism is a very useful tool in terms of understanding the modern state and capitalism. Um, so I... I I'm involved in both like uh, uh, indigenous anti-colonial resistance and also the anarchist anti-capitalist resistance and I see I see um the importance of both and I I try to build uh you know links between them because I think indigenous people can learn a lot from anarchism about the state because we didn't have the state. It's not part of our tradition, the centralized authority and power. We never had to deal with this. So anarchism can give us a, a better understanding of the state and how to resist it and how to, you know how it works, how the mechanisms of the state and whatnot. Anarchists uh, in living in North America, I think can learn a lot from indigenous people because indigenous people show another way of life is possible outside of the state because we existed for thousands and thousands of years without a state uh, before colonization. And indigenous culture, because of its connection to the natural world, you know, that, again, it can give another view of another way of life, another way of looking at the world we live in that's not just based on capitalism or, or even communism and, you know, building better factories so the proletariat can run society. I mean, indigenous Indigenous culture would be contrary to that because it's about, you know, living within the natural world, not occupying it and, you know, taking as many resources as you can and whatnot. So I think both movements can learn from one another in the current context in the world, the society that we live in now. So I think both are important. Um, And, uh, I mean, today, like in Canada, I mean, Indigenous peoples are often at the forefront of... uh, anti-colonial str- and even anti-capitalist struggles, even though you know a lot of Indigenous people aren't anti-capitalist, they're engaging in struggles that limit the ability of corporations to come in and take resources, for example. So Indigenous people can have, a, a, in Canada, because we're a bigger percentage, percentage of the population than in the United States and because of the location of a lot of Indigenous communities, Indigenous peoples in Canada can have a large impact on the politics of Canada. And So it's an important movement, and I think it's important for anarchists to understand the history of colonialism and anti-colonial resistance, and that will enable all of our movements to, you know, work, have better solidarity together once we understand each other's politics better, I think. That would be a big help.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That would be a big help, yeah. Do you sense that that's happening at all, though, that there is this uh, solidarity? Oh, definitely. I've
2: I've seen it since, because I've been involved since the late 1980s in and these kinds of movements. So I've seen a big progression over the last, you know, a few decades, two or three decades. Because in the late late 1980s in Vancouver, I mean, you'd ask a a leftist or even anarchist, like, "Whose whose Indigenous territory are we on? And nobody really knew. And it was never common at rallies to have a speaker or a welcoming speaker from the local Indigenous nation come to the rally to open it up and to, you know, to welcome people and stuff like that. That never, ever happened. And it was only in the 90s that that began to happen in Oka, which was a conflict, a confrontation between the Mohawk Nation primarily and uh The Canadian state, police, and military. It was a major standoff. It lasted like 77 days in the summer of 1990. Now, after that, you had a big change, and uh, in a lot of cities, especially in Vancouver, because that's where I was living, there was a big push to understand whose traditional territory you're on, to acknowledge that uh, at rallies and events. So then it became very common that you have someone from one of the local Indigenous nations come, open up the event, and whatnot. So that's been a big change. I think there's been a much more uh, I think anti-colonial consciousness has uh, increased a lot since the 1990s, since the early 1990s. And I think today, when you see when you see the solidarity with Unistatin, I think you know that's the result of all that uh, that that type of work, anti-colonial resistance work. Especially in Canada, I think anarchists are a lot more on top of anti-colonial resistance uh, solidarity type of stuff, um, just because of the importance of indigenous peoples in Canada, uh, the impact that indigenous peoples have on the society today. And I think it's different in the U.S. because Native people or a much smaller percentage of the population and you and you also have a much larger uh black and Latino populations. And I think a lot of efforts of the US uh Euro left settlers or whatever are often focused more on the black and Latino uh community organizing and stuff like that, just because they're much such a much more significant political force in the United States than indigenous peoples are. So in Canada there's it's a different kind of context here. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I mean I, I think uh Anti colonial consciousness has has grown uh, a lot more since the ni- early nineteen nineties. Yeah.
0: that's
1: good. Yeah, and and when we talk about, uh, you mentioned the Oka, you know, in, in the what nineteen ninety, I believe you said, um, and, yeah. and, and other other indigenous uh, resistance movements. Um, it, <sighs> I, I so I recently had an interview. It was last month, I think it was, and I just released this episode this past week. but um with Peter Gelderloos, who is an anarchist yep. and uh, activist and an author, and he's written very famous for writing that book how nonviolence protects the state and and uh he also yep. does some critiques into early state societies and how states form and all that. so I had a really good conversation with him, and I really enjoyed hearing his perspective on how nonviolence. Um, is it's a tactic, but it's it, it's often very limiting, and particularly within. Uh, you know movements that are like we're explicitly nonviolent or we're explicitly pacifistic. We're not going to expand our tactics beyond that point. He, you know he he just sort of really does a great job in that book of critiquing that notion. And he go and he just lay like point by point. He just breaks it down, and it's so I think it's so well written, and it really challenged my views yeah. on it as well. Um, but in, in in, ex- in talking about resistance, I mean, I think that that's such a, that term, it, it's a good word, obviously, it, it says a lot, but when we talk about resistance and we think like some people have this idea like, oh, nonviolent resistance, or they think, oh, you know, people are destroying property or they're engaging directly with you know com- confronting the military or the police. Um, people have a lot of different attitudes and ideas about that. And I know that you can only really speak for yourself and what you've done as, a, as an individual within these movements but what is your general attitude about, about like, maybe not what's most effective, maybe that that's a good question too, but what has been most effective for some of these indigenous resistance movements? Um, you talked to, I think you, it might've been an interview previous that I, I watched that you did with them talking about, you mentioned Idle No More, uh, using only nonviolence tactics and that that was rather ineffective. I believe that wasn't actually in a submedia video that I just watched today that you were in, um, but yeah, I, I guess I just want to get your understanding of of like what is effective and what has worked for Indigenous resistance movements. Yeah.
2: Well, I think like I, I know people, a lot of people think it's a cliche or it's some you know nefarious uh, thing, but diversity of tactics that's what works. Uh, even during Oka, it was an armed standoff. You had Mohawk warriors armed with AK-47s and whatnot. And they stood up and, you know, militarily uh, confronted the police and then the military, the Canadian forces. But, I mean, what what really, what happened there was like all across the country you had Indigenous people mobilizing in solidarity with the Mohawks at Oka. And they did a, a div- large diversity of tactics. I mean, you had rallies, you had, uh, you know, Uh, Off occupation of government offices, uh, highways being blockaded, railways being blockaded, uh, sabotage of different infrastructure and whatnot. That's what occurred and that is a diversity of tactics and that's what prevented the Canadian state from actually using military force to remove all the warriors. I mean the military was there but they were very restrained in their actions because of the solidarity coming from Indigenous people across the country because the Canadian state feared an indigenous insurgency could arise if they went in and used deadly force on the Mohawks, and you have to remember at the beginning of that standoff, there was a police officer who was shot and killed, and at that time, you know indigenous people didn't come out and condemn the Mohawks for defending their land uh, militarily and which resulted in the death of a police officer. People rose up in solidarity with the Mohawks, and so this non-violent and pacifism, it's a, it's a fairly recent ideology and that's what it is it's a belief that your nonviolent tactics and strategy are are not only uh morally super, superior because that's a big part of their their thing uh, presenting this nonviolence as being uh, a better way so they claim it's morally superior and then they claim that it's actually practically more effective but in reality, that's not true at all. And most of the nonviolent victories that have been claimed by pacifists are actually, in, actually involve a diversity of tactics. But going back to the Mohawks at Oka, I mean, they used violence. They were armed. They dug trenches and barricades. They shot at, poli- at police and whatnot. And, and it was a diversity of tactics, like, like I said, that limited the ability of the Canadian state to actually, like, repress that. But in the end, the Mohawks won, Because Oka, you know, the fight started over uh, the the township of Oka, wanted to expand the golf course and uh, build the condominium project over the pines, which was like a Mohawk burial ground and a very important and sacred area to them. That's why they, they, they rose up. You know, that's why they were trying to stop this development from happening. And they won. So today, the golf course was never expanded and the condominium project was never built. So they won. And there's many, many examples of... You know, in, in this context, Indigenous peoples using a diversity of tactics, including violent means in achieving a victory. But that will run contrary to the pacifists who claim up and down, like, no, that's you know, that, that didn't work or, you know, this works better or whatever. But the pacifism is just like a recent thing, you know, like... Uh, aside from some religious cults that preach nonviolence don't harm any living being any living thing. Pacifism only really arose in the in the twentieth century, right? Like in the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties with Gandhi and all that. So and he he of course was promoted by the British, who were the imperial power that ruled India. So Gandhi was actually like he was almost like a an agent of British colonialism in Carrying out counter-revolutionary activities in India to suppress an actually an actual revolutionary movement, and even India, which gained its independence after world after the massive destruction of World War II, I mean India saw massive campaigns of rioting, guerrilla warfare, assassinations of British officials, and whatnot. And then at the end of the day, the pacifists will still say, well, India got its independence through nonviolence because they just revise history because they're stuck in it, in their belief and ideology that pacifism is morally superior to all other forms of action. So that's my take on pacifism and nonviolence. It's promoted, provided primarily by middle class entities such as Gandhi, who was a lawyer, or, you know, others you can, you know, more recent history you can see, but, I mean, pacifism was never a part of our indigenous cultures. Like, we, when we were faced with a, a physical threat, we respond with physical force to defend ourselves. And that's common sense. That's what any, any living being, any animal does that. It's just natural. Yeah. But it's only with this ideology of pacifism that you have this belief that we have to respond only using nonviolence. And they'll present it as, like, well, it's just, uh, it's politically practical to do that. And of course, I mean, um, there are times when you just can't use a militant uh, force to, you know, carry out something. That's why you have a diversity of tactics. But anyway, yeah, that's my, that's my take.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah, no, no. And, and, you know, something that that, uh, uh, Peter talked about in his book was this idea that if you engage in violence, you're going to only perpetuate violence into the future. You know, if you, if somehow by, by, dirtying your hands with violent tactics or, or a diversity of tactics, that that somehow is going to, like, uh, <laughs> you know, you're going to continue to perpetuate violence in the future by doing that. It's sort of a strange logic, because it's really obvious that that's yeah. not the case. Well, it's,
2: it's the moralism. Yeah. It's the moral judgment yeah. that a lot of pacifists carry with them, and because the actual roots of pacifism are from a, the religious cult. I mean, Gandhi's whole thing, his whole project, was basically a cult, and it was based on these old ancient religions like Hinduism and that. That's where he got all his all his ideas from. And, and, and Christians who came in with their pacifism, like, uh, and so that's the basis of it. And that's why I find most pacifists it's, it, they're so moralizing and judgmental of other people, and they think that they're, they, that they're morally superior to other people, and, and that's from the religious basis that 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 belief comes from
1: yeah. But, yeah 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 it's true yeah um and you know so i just want to sh- sort of shift gears a little bit but you know you you wrote a book the antifa comic book um i think it's fascinating that you're approaching these subjects through uh, kind of a comic a uh, graphic novel medium um but i i know that you again from, from researching your work that you you kind of go into the history of fascism, you get into where it ultimately stemmed from. Of course, one of the the earliest or the the first real fascist movement to emerge was in Italy, uh with Mussolini. Um, you know, in in that research, I mean, obviously you're you're tracing the beginnings all the way up to the present moment. Now we have uh what seems to be at least in the United States, we have a a, f- a right wing president. Obviously, we have someone like Trump who who does like uh, what they call it, dog whistle, where he he constantly says things that are you know obviously meant to be heard by white supremacists and people like okay, yeah, we get what you're saying. Uh, particularly with this whole border wall thing, um, and then with with Charlottesville, uh, you know, there's just numerous, I mean, countless examples of. Of of Trump using dehumanizing language for people, for immigrants, for people that are from south of this arbitrary border along the southern border of the United States, um, you know, so many numerous examples of, of that. But but we have seen, and, and it didn't start with Trump by any means. He's a symptom, I think, of a deeper problem. But. We've seen a rise of right-wing violence, right-wing organization, and definitely they've seen setbacks. I know that after Charlottesville, I've spoken with a few different people about this, how uh, after Charlottesville, particularly after Charlottesville, because of what happened then, uh, these alt-right groups had some setbacks, at least in public relations, um, and their ability to, to... get their message out and they were deep platformed on various uh, different ways. Uh, But I don't think that that's going to stop it from happening. I mean obviously there is this, these social conditions that lead to this. So I I guess to maybe frame this within a real question for you, (laughs) is in your research into say, uh, the very beginnings of fascism with Italy, with uh, Germany, with all these various other examples of right-wing nationalism, right-wing ideologies, uh, what what did you, I guess, maybe some takeaways of what you learned about how fascism emerges in a society? Uh, what, what are some signs that we can look towards to, to knowing that fascism is actually rising, say, here in North America, for example?
2: Well, I think if you look at the, the two primary examples of fascism— uh which is fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. I mean, both those countries experienced, you know, after World War I, they experienced a lot of uh, political crises, uh, social instability, uh, social conflict, uh, high rates of unemployment, uh, poverty. Uh, So these were the conditions that the fascist movement arose within. But they also had, you know... uh, there was h- ten hundreds of thousands of soldiers were demobilized from the German and Italian militaries, and these formed the basis of the fascist movement in the par- through the paramilitary groupings and the paramilitary forces that were m- established by the fascists and the Nazis were the backbone of the movement i mean they were able to uh they were they were you know established to defend the fascist groups when they were having uh, meetings or rallies and whatnot and they were and also to carry out offensive actions against uh, the revolutionary left, socialists and trade union you know, all the political enemies of fascism so the paramilitary groups were traditionally a very, very important part. I mean, they were the foundation of these fascist movements was the paramilitary groups. Uh, today, you have a different situation in the United States. There's nowhere near the same type of social conflict or... Uh, uh, unemployment levels, and, uh, you know, you don't have the mass of demobilized soldiers. But what you do have in the United States, and maybe in North America, let's talk Canada as well, what you do have are soldiers coming back from wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and some of these soldiers are coming back with very anti-Islamic, uh, Islamophobic beliefs. And then in the United States overall, you have, because of these wars, you have a, a, a big increase in Islamophobia. And so this and and this is like what's uh, the engine right now of the far right in Europe and North America is this Islamophobia and and it translate it transfers into the anti-immigrant um, politics, which has also historically been an important part of fascist movements. Like if you look back. The late 60s, early 70s, the rise of the National Front in Britain, for example, was based almost entirely on anti-immigrant racism. Uh, so you have these two factors in the United States and Canada right now. I mean, because some of these far-right groups have been organized by former soldiers like Lemoot in Quebec, which is one of the biggest far-right groups in Quebec and probably one of the best organized in Canada, was formed by two former soldiers who served in Afghanistan. Afghanistan. And so anyway, right now, in, you know, in county United States, you have these militia groups. Uh, they're all, basically all situated in the, in the right wing and the far right. And within this militia movement, you have these uh, basically uh, fascist far right elements and groups and units that are organizing. And so that's something you want to keep an eye on is the militia movement, which really,
0: you know, really grew in the
2: 1990s. Um, And I think that's something you want to keep an eye on because, like I said, these paramilitaries have traditionally, historically been the backbone of fascist movements. And so what you've been seeing right over the last couple of years, because of the rise of Trump and his rhetoric, he's emboldened all the far right, all the racists, all the white supremacists, all the Nazis, neo-Nazis and fascists and whatever. But, what you've seen over the last couple of years is when the far right goes and holds one of their so called free speech rallies and whatnot, you have the militias coming in acting like they're doing security to defend people's right to have free speech against anti far right so you kind of have you've had this flirting relationship between these far right militias and these far right neo nazi fascist groups right now, and so what you would want to look for in you know to really see a dangerous trend emerging is the is the broader formation of fascist uh, militia groups. I would say that's one thing. I mean, right now, in the, the present situation, you do have a resurgence of fascist far-right movements. I mean, it, it, not only in North America, but around the world. And they all feed off one another. So when in Brazil you get a fascist uh, president elected, I mean, all the fascists in North America are emboldened by that. Like they're, they feel like they're riding a wave right now because they're on the ascendancy, and so that's going to create more problems because now they feel more, even more emboldened. You know, they got Trump in the president as a president, um, and then what happens if Trump is impeached or he, you know, somehow he's forced to resign or whatever? I mean, that's going to create a, a small political crisis in the United States. What the far right is going to react in one way or another, but I think. Overall, right now, these far-right movements and groups are fairly small, but I think their beliefs are shared by uh, many more people than we would constitute as the movement. So, you know, they have a lot of people listening to them right now, a lot of primarily white people, but that's the other thing. In the United States, you know, you, you see formations such as the Proud Boys. Patriot Prayer on the West Coast emerging. And these are, I mean, the Proud Boys are almost predominantly white, let's say, but you do have people of color being involved in them, and you do have... Uh, Latino uh, neo-Nazi skinhead groups. I mean, th- this is a reality. So, in the future, I mean, United States, you could see, you could actually see some kind of multinational fascist movement arise. That's not just based on white supremacy, although it's kind of framed within the context of white supremacy, right? Because these, the, the, I mean, the Latino neo-Nazi is obviously subscribing in some way to a white supremacist ideology, but fascism itself. Isn't just white supremacy. Uh, so I mean, I think that's another danger you can see in the United States because you, you do have a fairly diverse population. It's not all just white people. It's not like Nazi Germany or fascist Italy where you have a very a much more homogeneous population. So that's something you could see arise. Um, yeah, I mean, and if there's any more socioeconomic crises, the fascists could be positioned to exploit that, and their movement could grow much larger. I mean, that's a uh, that's a possibility, because they're kind of entrenched right now, even though they've had setbacks and all that. I mean, they've always had a problem with infighting. They're always divided. I mean, people talk about the left being divided, but the right wing, I mean, the far right is, like, completely divided. So that's one thing you want to watch, watch for, too, is if there's any real significant, uh, unifying efforts among the far right. I mean, that's what Charlottesville was supposed to be, yeah. but because of, because of the murder of Heather Hayer, I mean, that completely backfired on them and, yeah. you know, a lot of people came out against that. So, you know, I think that's some things you, you'd want to watch for. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. So uh, I, I don't know how to tie this particular subject into indigenous resistance, but, uh, within, Within indigenous resistance struggles, I, I I often see what's happening is there there tends to be like with with the west and people or or other peoples in Canada that are for instance they're they're specifically seem to be resisting the Canadian state and the the oil pipeline developments right these corporations capitalist interests, yep. right um, and then yep. I see within anarchist and anti fascist movements specifically they're they're they are addressing those things but they tend to also be directly confronting. Uh, far-right groups in the streets, right? We see with Patriot Prayer or what happened in Charlottesville. We have numerous other examples with the Proud Boys, for instance, um, you know, direct confrontations. And and I do see that there is yeah. this cross-pollination happening. Uh, do you see that indigenous resistance and, and uh, anti-capitalist or anti-fascist uh, movements, um, you know, basically fighting the same things, if that makes any sense, or, or is that already happening and I'm just not really seeing it?
2: I think ultimately they are, because the fascists are basically, you know, that is a cliche, but they're like the foot soldiers of capitalism in crisis. And I think, I I think, like, well, indigenous people are just kind of naturally inclined to be more anti-racist and anti-fascist. And you go back into the 1950s with the KKK, I mean, there was a famous altercation, a confrontation that occurred uh, in the eastern U.S. with uh, the KKK was trying to hold a rally near a native reservation, and they just came out and hundreds of them came out, they shot at the KKK and chased them out. <laughs> uh, I think that's just a very uh, intuitive uh, or just like a natural response from indigenous peoples to an organization like the KKK or these racist far-right groups. I mean, more recently, Lamute attempted to go to Gonawagi, which is a Mohawk territory reserve just outside Montreal. Lemoot tried to go there and hold a rally and the Gonawagi Mohawks came out and Basically, and just kick them out. Kick them out. Um, so I think indigenous people are, like, intuitively see that like, the fascist far right isn't really, you know, aren't their friends, and are actually like an enemy to be opposed. Um, I think when indigenous people, there's a there's a there's a fairly broad level of anti capitalist consciousness among indigenous peoples. I mean, a lot of them don't uh... embrace anti-capitalist radical politics but they have an understanding that this system is corrupt it's exploitive it's destructive and they can see it all you know every day you know like here on the west coast the fisheries is completely declined it's harder and harder to get fish that's a result of this system so people have an intuitive understanding there's something wrong with the system and they'll support efforts like the unistatin to stop a pipeline going across their land because they you know a, a lot of indigenous people relate to that uh and it, it's it's an important struggle to them and we've seen that over the last few years as well um with you know with other with the the uh Uh, the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline resistance. I mean, that was a massive mobilization and stuff like that. So in terms of that, I mean, indigenous people are kind of in, you know, like I mentioned before, they're kind of engaged in these anti-capitalist struggles, but, you know, mostly against a specific corporation or, or, you know, resource extraction industry or whatever. But it's there. Um, And the same with the the far-right fascist groups. I mean, yeah, that's... uh, they're, They're... if it, I mean, most indigenous communities aren't really facing uh, an attack by far right groups as such right now. But if they did, I mean, there, I mean, there would always, I think there would be a lot of solidarity between anti fascist and indigenous people, indigenous communities who are you know facing this kind of uh, this kind of threat. But yeah, yeah,
1: no, I, I, I mean, my
2: my thing is I I always promote multinational resistance because we have to work together and. Uh, we have to make alliances and act in solidarity with one another
1: so no yeah I, I completely agree and that's and and i think you did a fantastic job of of bridging what is already happening i mean it's already we're already seeing across uh cross, you know support for each other's movements it, it it isn't always explicit and and it isn't always stated very obviously but i do see that there like you said there's just sort of this intuitive sense you know, say on, among indigenous people that, no, we don't support white nationalists. You know, we're going to push them off our land. Yeah, you know exactly. You know, it's just like a, yeah, a they, given. They know what it is. Yeah. yeah. I mean,
2: I know a lot of indigenous people, they're they're not involved in anti-fascist work, but they support it. You know, they they see the threat, they understand it, and they, they kind of monitor it and track it. You know, they, people are aware of what's going on. They just don't come out you know to the anti fascist rally waving uh you know the native flag or whatever, but they're conscious of it and they're aware of what's going on so
1: right yeah, yeah and i think the the yeah, this is something I think is interesting you have like say a hardcore leftist like you know they study marxist theory and and they're in a university studying it on a very theoretical level um, and then you have the person who's you know working a 9 to 5 job or working some shitty mini- minimum wage job and they're they're experiencing it on a very visceral level like this is robbing my life of its value. It's taking my time away from me so I can barely survive and pay rent and all this shit. You've got indigenous people who are like, no, we've been dealing with colonialism and now capitalism for hundreds of years. I mean, everybody's coming at it from a different angle. They're they're analyzing it in a different way. They're either feeling it uh, either intuitively or directly. And I think a lot of people now, I just feel like what needs to happen is there just needs to be a very... I mean, it is happening, like you stated already, but you know even more so. Especially, uh, I'm worried that in it, that you know talking about socioeconomic conditions, I think that this game that we're playing, you know, staving off this inevitable collapse uh, here within the United States, or or I imagine in Canada or in other parts of the global economy as well, staving off this inevitable collapse. That once that starts to really hit home on so many people you know far right ideologies are going to be appealing to to particularly white people and and other people as well of course um and and to have a very robust resistance to that is going to require you know, people who, uh, again, on, on the surface may seem very different from one another, but have ultimately the same intuitive sense that there's something deeply wrong with the system, and that something much better exists outside of that. And and I think, yeah, yeah I, I just, I, I, I sense that that needs to happen now more than ever. Yeah.
2: Yeah, uh, I agree. I mean, one thing about the far right today is that, you know, I think that a book came out that talked about the the far right being insurgent movements because they're tapping into the same sentiment that a lot of people are like, something's wrong with the system. But the far right explanation is that it's the Jews controlling the global economy and the mud races and all this stuff. So that's where they get those Individuals who are questioning what's going on and when who have, you know, who are maybe cynical or disillusioned with the system, the far right is able to recruit some of them through this very, very crude conspiracy theories that are just repeated over and over and over again in all these different platforms. You know, from Infowars to uh, the Daily Stormer to Stormfront to all these other fascist far right sites. You go and visit them; they're all like this. Anti-Semitism is all all through them. You know, the, you know, coded with the globalists and all this type of right. stuff. Right. So they're feeding into the same type of—I uh, mean—they're recruiting from the same kind of like disillusionment that we're talking about, where people—you know—people are becoming more disillusioned with the system, and they're just like, it—you it, know—it may take like a rupture of some kind to break the the the, uh, the surface calm that we have right now, that will make people be like, oh, okay, like, you know, I'm going to choose a side, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be a fascist. Yeah. Or whatever. So
1: right. right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I uh yeah, I think that's a great note to, to kind of to end this this interview. But um Gord, uh you you write under uh your, your name of course Gord Hill, but you also write under Zigzag. I don't know if you still use that name uh in more recent uh writings, but that is another name that you have gone under as well.
2: Um, yeah that's right yeah I usually once in a while it was just like a, a pen name I adopted and I, I still signed my artwork with the big Z so <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> wonderful um, not much
2: of a code name now though <laughs> yeah
1: exactly I know but I I I, I... I mean, there, there's your website, warriorpublications.wordpress.com. Um, of course, your book, 500 yeah. Years of Indigenous Resistance, the Anti-Capitalist Resistance comic book, the 500 Years of Resistance comic book, the Antifa comic book as well. You're an amazing uh, artist, so I, I think your, your illustrations and the way that you convey your information through the medium of, of, of the graphic novel is, is wonderful. I love that. Uh, is there any other work that I'm missing that I'm excluding from that, that list?
2: uh no i mean i have self-published a lot of zines and uh stuff but those are the main published works i have yeah for sure yeah
1: Yeah. and of course i just mentioned your website and I'll, i'll direct people to all of those resources in the description um yeah i i don't know is there anything else that you'd like to add any other information any upcoming projects or anything else that you have in the works right now
2: Uh, no, not right now. No, I'm just kind of doing my daily work for survival, carving and painting and whatnot. So (laughs)
1: that's
2: kind of what I'm focused on right now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Is there like, do you sell any of that or is that like, is that something you just do like in person or is there a website people can look at that or, or is there anything like that? My artwork? Yeah. Yeah.
2: For my artwork? Yeah. Uh, I just, I, I make art and sell it to people, who, anybody who wants to buy it, um, okay. uh, mostly through word of mouth and whatnot. Okay. And, and, uh, but if people can t- contact me through my website, uh, my email address is on there. So they can contact me through there if they ever wanted artwork, <laughs> a painting or a cedar box or something like that. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, again, I think your, uh, your artwork is really good. It's amazing. I, I, I just love the ways in which people express themselves. Uh, you know, it, politically, obviously, people do it in all kinds of ways. And so it's, your, your artwork's amazing. Your comic books are really beautiful to, to look at and, uh, and very informative. You know, I mean, you can learn a lot from just reading a graphic novel. So, uh, you know, Gord, thank you so much for your time, man. I really appreciate it.
2: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a
1: wonderful week, and as a psychedelic bard, Terrence McKenna said, take it easy, dude,
0: but take it!